All right, if you have your Bibles, uh, let's go to our last sermon today in 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 13, so if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and go there. Uh, Before we get to that, just a few announcements with Easter coming around the corner. I want to let you know that today you can pick up your Easter invite cards. We also uh, have been working hard at seeing, hey, how can we do an Easter egg hunt this year with all the restrictions? And the long story short is we can't provide one, but we can bring one to you. And so we have these Easter egg hunt kits that we're going to bring to each family uh, that calls to shore home. And so you can see all the details there, but within this kit, you'll have these pictures that represent different parts of the Jesus story. So parents, this will equip you to be able to tell the Jesus story uh, as you do an Easter egg hunt, and you can fill it with whatever candy you want. So uh, we're bringing an Easter hunt to you. Also, just want to let you know, Good Friday, April 2nd, 10 a.m., Uh, If Bonnie Henry, for any reason, changes in-person ability, we'll do that for both East Good Friday and Easter Sunday, Uh, but plan on live feed for now. But we're really excited about that. Again, you can pick up your invite cards and uh, a few things. So we're, you know, March break, and uh, there have been some ways that we can gather as as a community and relationally. A few of those ways is outside and doing kids events, which are allowed. And so we have a few of them coming up. First one I wanna highlight is if you have any kids in nursery or kindergarten, or you have neighbors or families or anyone you wanna invite to this, they're doing an outdoor gathering at Kate's Park, March 18th. Uh, And then also the following week, uh, grades one to six, outdoor Olympics, both again at Kate's Park to make it super uh, easy for you to remember, but all the information about the kids, Easter with kids, March break with kids is all on the website, so thank you, Tracy, for just organizing all that. All right, so let me begin our time. I'm going to ask you this one question that will set us up. If I asked you to name all the things you loved, so all the things you loved, How long would it take before you named your church community? With this question in our mind, we we come to this last message, a message written by a pastor who deeply, deeply loves Jesus' church, who planted Jesus' church. He loves her unity, loves her growth, loves her witness, loves her stability, and loves them deeply. Chapter 13, as you'll see here in a second here, it closes with um, Paul's last call to this church, particularly a group of this church that were being led astray by these false apostles who were saying, Paul is really not the main thing that we need to listen to. Paul's message and gospel are less than us. Listen to us. And he's had to spend the last few chapters trying to regain their trust, regain their, <clears throat> their gospel focus on Jesus. And, and this morning, he's going to close with a few very serious imperatives and then some, some really shocking imperatives. So there's eight imperatives. If you don't know what that means, it means commands, things to take action that Jesus is saying, this will activate your life and will make all the things that are, that are not just head, but into your heart and life. Um, and so he's going to show us <clears throat> six ways, six, six truths of how we can represent Jesus to one another, and if acted upon, they have power to transform unity and love within a church, okay? So that'll make sense as we read our passage. Let me read it, and then we'll pray, and we'll get into it. Let's read it together. So 
Chapter 13, last one. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Here's the first imperative. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Second one, test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though, you know, we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me, for building up and not for tearing down. And then here's the six imperatives that we're going to look at. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let me pray. Oh, Jesus, I just, I ask that as we slow down and look at all eight, that you would activate and participate and collaborate with us by the presence of your Spirit in this church. Lord, we don't want to be observers of a church just in 2 Corinthians, but we want to be presently obedient in the church of the shore, in the community you've given us. And if we've been in this letter for a few months now, I ask that the very strong and true love and peace of God would rest. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would anoint this passage in such a way where we will be transformed. We will be renewed in our minds. We would have greater connections with Jesus and one another. And I just, may it just come with power. In, in the name of Jesus, I pray. And Lord, I just, I pray too, if there's any uh, spirits that would want to condemn us when we read words like examine, we just pray that they cannot. And we would look at your eyes and your love as we hear this. We wouldn't look at our lack and the condemnation of the enemy. So protect us from that. Keep us focused. Help us to love your Bible. Help us to feel excited about being in a letter. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so here's the thing. We have addressed over the last few weeks so many 
uh, nuggets that Paul repeats as he's kind of closing off this letter of, in, in, these, in these first few verses. So we've looked at and talked deeply about the good grace of church discipline. So he's ready to come to them. If they're not ready to repent, he's going to do church discipline. We, we've talked about Paul's authority as an apostle, the power of Christ in weakness. We spent a few Sundays there. We talked a lot throughout the series about doing everything for the upbuilding. What does that look like? Uh, praying for restoration. We talked about having a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. And, and, and so wrapping up all these themes, all I want to do today, uh, if you're okay with it, is just look at our imperatives. What is he calling the church into action now? So they had just read this entire letter. They were, they were listening to him. The spirit was working. There was lots being said in this one letter. And at the very end, he calls them to these actions into seeing the Spirit come in with them and collaborate with their wills to do what Jesus is doing. And so that's what we're going to look at today. So the first one, I want you to just take your beautiful eyes and look at verse 5. First one is the call to examine and test. We'll put those together. He says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So here's what's fascinating about this imperative. It comes off the heels of verse 3. And in verse 3, they are questioning and actually telling Paul, actually demanding Paul, that he show proof that Christ is speaking through him. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. You know, you got to remove yourself from the assessing of me chair And you guys need to assess yourselves. Because the gospel I preached was truly from Jesus Christ. I'm really an apostle, so you need to test yourselves. Is the same Jesus message that I preached, the same character, the same commands that I called you into this letter, is that in you? So his heart is is in that examining, in their testing. They're going to go, okay, okay, is Paul's message about Jesus in me? You know, that he who knew no sin became sin so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. I'm a new creation and and I'm going to be a generous person. And all, you know, all the things that this letter had had said, is that there? Is that in them? You know, Uh, and and that's hard work. They they have to do the test to go, um, I, I don't want Paul to use his apostolic harshly. So I want to know. So, so let me say it this way. Paul is saying in this uh, imperative, he's saying if the Corinthians are truly Christians, they will realize that Jesus is in them. And if Jesus is in them, follow me here, they should be led to acknowledge that he's also in Paul. For it was through Paul's message, it was through the spirit that they came into saving faith. Does that make sense? To throw out the Jesus in Paul is to throw out the Jesus in them. So testing themselves is like, is, he, is his message true? Is what happened with him true? Is everything he's saying about how I lived, is, is that in me? And, and that's, that's the test. It, let me say this. It's never true in Scripture that someone can have Jesus and then discover somehow he's no longer there. But the call in this kind of imperative, in this testing, is, is the Jesus of the gospel that I once came to, is it still gripping? Is it still producing in me? Am I still clinging to the death and resurrection of Jesus? You know, so let me say it this way. If Jesus, if Jesus' words and Jesus' presence and his heart towards uh, others seems to be really far and distant in your life, and all of a sudden, all your views about God have, you know, since you became a Christian, have began to just really drift. I mean, drift far. 
And your heart has actually or began to feel kind of smug, where you're not only unconscious of grace, but you actually don't feel like you need grace. I would just say you need to examine, that it's okay, it's healthy to examine. If, if you have no seasons where, where there's inside of you a hunger to see the kingdom break in, where you're like, I want to represent his grace, I want to bring his peace and healing for others, and then examine, examine. When, when we're invited to belong to Jesus, this is so simple, so look right at me. We're invited into the way of Jesus. Let me just show you a verse that says it so well. So John, one of Jesus' really close friends, he writes this in his letter. By this we may know that we are in him. Same kind of language. Christ is in you. So how do we know? He says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Into the things that Jesus did. One, one, trans, one transliteration says this, we can be sure that we're truly come to live in the intimacy with God, not just by saying, I am intimate with God, but by walking in the footsteps of Jesus. See, that's the test. He, he's, he's been speaking to this church. He's like, guys, the very, the very fact that you're just saying Jesus isn't in me and you're asking for proof, you gotta examine yourselves. Don't call me to the court. And so here's the test. Are you still looking to Jesus and Jesus alone, whose life and death and resurrection are your only hope? If the answer is yes, pass. Are you clinging to Jesus? Are you working for the truth? Remember he says that we work for the truth. So, so examining for Paul had a goal not to validate your faith. You're not trying to go, okay, am, am I truly saved? No, no, no. What you're trying to do is you're reorienting to the truth of the gospel of Jesus, the, the working of the truth of the gospel. And that's been his thread throughout this whole letter. If you just remember, I'm going to highlight a few of them. For all the promises, these will be on the screen, of God find their yes in Jesus. We preach, he says, the gospel of Christ. It is in Jesus that we are led in triumphal procession. And it's in Jesus that we speak and we serve. It's, it's in the face of Jesus that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God has shone. Our aim is to please Jesus whose love controls us. It's only in Jesus that a fallen, broken rebel can become a new creation. It, it was in Jesus that God was reconciling the world to himself. It was on Jesus that our sin was laid, the obedience to Jesus, that every thought captive. We, 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 we go, okay, is this obedient to Jesus? Can you see the theme here? Can you see the thread here? That's the test here. So examining our hearts is about our reunion, both with the Spirit of God and with one another in the church. Does that, does that sit with you? Okay, yeah, okay, good. You're not in here, so... So again, I want you to imagine, so just, you know, verses and uh, chapters didn't come into the Bible until the 13th century, and so there's no chapter breaks here. This is one letter, one sermon, read out loud. So I want you to imagine you've been hearing the whole thing in one sitting, and then he says, examine yourselves, and you've already had so much examining with the Spirit. This is the living Word of God, and then watch what he does. He gives you six imperatives that I find shocking until I started studying them. All of a sudden, six powers of the presence of the spirit of peace and of love infused into a church if they operate and obey them. So, so that's what I want to do. For the rest of our sermon, we're going to look at these six. So let me, let me read it again. Look at verse 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. 
aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So, that is good grace gospel medicine right there, okay? That'd be a good name of a song. You know, good grace gospel, I'm not going to try it. Okay, that was kind of southern. Maybe I'm a southern guy. Okay, here we go. Number one, let's look at them together. First imperative, rejoice. Woo! Rejoice. Yes. So let me say this. This one is just on itself. He just says rejoice. I want you to picture that. He just says it, rejoice. In their language, they would have heard that's a command. So I wonder if they looked at each other and they were like, something's missing. So let's talk about a command to rejoice. What, is, what does that mean? What does that look like? Let me say a few things. Number one, written to a community, think, of, think with me about how you feel when people are glad to be together. When people are glad to be together, how do you feel? That'll be one of your first questions in, in a community group. When people are glad to be together, how do you feel? And here's the truth. God designed us to live on a rich diet of joy-filled relationships. You were designed by your creator, who, by the way, is relationship. So you were made in the image of relationship. He's designed you to live on such a rich diet of joy-filled relationships. So what was interesting, um, about a few months ago, someone put the book in my lap called The Other Half of the Church and gave it to the elders. And, and in there, uh, it's really just a book on discipleship and neuroscience. Because as you discover neuroscience, you, you realize the right part of your brain is the relational capacity part, which is a larger part of the brain than just your left side, which is your thinking and logic. And in the middle of the front cortex is actually your identity, uh, your neurological control center. It's, it's the relational joy center. So Listen to what Jim Wilder, so he's a theologian, PhD, neuroscience. Listen to what he says about the role of rejoicing. Because I want you to go, why is Paul saying that for all this, you know, all this theology and, and, and call to be one? He says rejoice. First imperative, out of, the, out of the lips of God through Paul are rejoice. Why? Here's what he writes. When we are the sparkle in someone's eyes, their face lights up with a smile when they see us. We feel joy. From the moment we are born, born, joy shapes the chemistry, structure, and growth of our brain. Joy lays the foundation for how well we will handle relationships, emotions, pain, pleasure throughout our lifetime. Joy creates an identity that is stable and consistent over time. Joy gives us the freedom to share our hearts with God and others, expressing our joyful, afraid, of our vulnerabilities or expressing our joyful, you know what, that's a typo. Joy gives us the freedom from fear to live from the heart Jesus gave us. We discovered the increasing delight in becoming the people God knew we could be. So, so here's the thing I want us to see. This command is as serious as every other command in the Bible. This command is about bringing joy into community. Let me say it this way. The way to smash through communities that are either pretending or in disunity is to, is to cultivate and reestablish joy. And here's, here's what that looks like. Whether you're in the present emotional state or not, I am glad to be with you. 
Rejoice. God is with us. Rejoice. He is doing this. Rejoice. Paul's so serious about this. He says this all the time. So look at Philippians 4.4. Here's what he says. Rejoice in the Lord. How, how often? What does it say? Always. Oh, that seems like a lot. And then he's like, Mm-mm. again, I will say rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, he says this. Rejoice always. So as you rejoice, as you begin to have an appreciation, as you begin to have a thanksgiving in Jesus, in the Lord, and you bring that into your community, a lot of the stuff Paul had already been talking about will just take its place. Think about it like, you know, you know the way a chiropractor adjusts one thing in your whole body lines. Sometimes in the body of Christ, what's missing is actually joy. It's funny how, not funny, it's, it's beautiful how Jesus says, I have come that they may have right brain, frontal cortex connection with me. He says that. He says, I have come that they may have joy and joy to the full. Rejoice is hard. It is. I don't think he's just uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't think he's just, you know, being, being cliche. So I think that there, comes, there comes a moment where we go, you know what, I don't think I've rejoiced in a long time. And the imperative goes, you got to do it. Okay? You know what, right now I just feel like you should just ask Jesus, would you give me more opportunity to rejoice? You go ahead and you just ask him. Okay, good. All right, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Second imperative, aim for restoration. Now, translators all have to do, you know, work from Greek to English, and so, you know, there's no actual fully literal translations. Translators do their best. So other translations that are really faithful to this Greek kind of way of saying this word is, is be restored or mend your ways or pull yourselves together. Like, aim for restoration. So as a rejoicing community, do the hard work of communication. Do the hard work of, of like, let's clarify. We need to be working for unity and mutual forgiveness. You know, like, you know, there's a passion that love covers a multitude of sins. So let me say this right now to all of us here. If you have hurt that's been unexpressed with someone within the shore, Jesus is speaking to you right now. Because this is not a letter for different people back then. This is right now a present moment where Jesus is saying to us, the church, I love you and I'm seeing there's relational damage and I'm here to bring healing within it. Because the Father's heart is unity. And so where you have that, you can choose to cover a multitude of sins, and you, and you can choose to really forgive and release that person and bless them. Or if you know, I got, that's unexpressed heard, aim for restoration. So he's saying, pull yourselves together, okay? So we got to do that. There's nothing like a pandemic 
with all the complexities of, of, of justice and mask wearing and secondary doctrinal theological issues and mistakes and, and, and not being together for a long time, that can fester pain and can fester un, unspoken confusion or needing to clarify which, which really takes us to the second one. I appreciate the order really, really a lot. Uh, he says this, comfort one another. Remember, this is where the letter began. If you remember 2 Corinthians 1, the God of all mercy is the God of all comfort who comforts us so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. So you got to remember this. In this church, much of their affliction was actually consequences of a false teaching group that came in and deceived a lot of people. And then saying it's okay to sin. We can live without the cross and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's, so here's the thing. It's easy when you're in the church to judge them and go, you're the reason why our church is messed up. That's not what our reaction should be. Our call isn't to go first, you know, how could you guys be deceived? Why didn't you just listen to Paul in the first place? That could all be true. But his call is to comfort, not if they comfort you first. There's no conditions on this command. Love moves in with a kind of comfort. Because I imagine as they're hearing this letter being read, many of them who are being deceived are going, we were wrong. We were wrong. And then they look at their neighbors and their friends, and they're like, will they accept me? Will they love me? And that person's to go, hey, let me come for you. So thankful for this letter. We love you. We're glad to be with you. It's over. It's finished. We love you. Comfort, comfort. Who do you need to comfort? Next imperative and action to obey, he says, agree. Agree with one another. This can be also translated literally, think the same. Let me give you another place where you see this. This is in Romans chapter 12. It says this, live in harmony with one another. Different verse, I'll, I'll just read it. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Another verse says, Philippians 2, it says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So this one's interesting because the heart here is it's not that you have all the same opinions and you're all like a bunch of robots who never disagree and, you know, that's not the, that's not the church. The church is like this beautiful, perplexed, um, different opinions, different ways of, like a variety. That's the picture of the body of Christ. We are one body, many parts. You can't have unity if you don't have diversity. It's, it's, there's a beautiful picture of of, of one, but what he is saying is that there's a deeper unity of love. There's a unity of honor, a unity of I value you. And so, so yes, we do strive for the unity of essential truths of the faith. That's the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, yes. We need to have a common vision as a church, yes. Our commitment to the gospel must never be compromised. But everything else is di in diversity, the gifts, all of it's beautiful because that's where you can actually have true unity. Next, he says, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. 
So let me, let me say this. The next time you're in a place of disharmony, you know it. You're like, you know what? I feel disharmony. I feel a little delusioned right now. I don't know what's going on. I even feel the scheme of the devil. He's trying to sow division. Live in peace, and the God of peace will be present with you. Is, is you going, I'm going to live in peace, so I'm going to press into the God of peace, and I'm going to ask the Lord, what does he think of my situation? What, what I find so beautiful about this language, the God of peace, is that one of the greatest fruits of the kingdom in Romans is, is that, this, that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and of peace. In Romans 16, li- listen to how we see the God of peace crushing Satan. Now watch this, under our feet. Let me read this verse. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's really good. He, he goes on, our last imperative. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay? I like this one. I like this one. Not because I want to kiss all y'all. Um, but what I appreciate about this is that there's a physical expression of agape love. I think... We need to restore some of that. So let me, just, let me just read about the whole kissing thing because we're in the text. Uh, here's what one New Testament scholar writes. Kissing between family and friends and as a form of public greeting and parting was common in the ancient East, as it is still in some places today. Kissing was also part of sealing contracts and symbolizing personal reconciliation. I mean, think about that. That's an intimacy, intimacy thing. Such kisses might be placed on the cheek, forehead, shoulder, or if an honorific on the hand or even the foot. What, what, what I learned when I studied this is it actually started leaving the church in the third century when fears of inappropriate behavior and the potential of offense to non-Christian husbands came in. But let me say something here. Physical touch, a hand on a shoulder, a hand while you're praying, a hug, a greeting that embraces with the Father's love can impart such a release of what rejoice meant to be chemically in your brain, in your heart. We were made to have physicality. There's a reason why God became flesh. There's a beauty in his hugging that we long for, in the hug of a father, in, in a little girl sitting on the lap, in holding hands, in kissing in marriage, in what, what sex, sex is meant to point to in marriage. Physicality is really, really important in the kingdom. And it's really important in unity. You know, that's why we say hug it out. You know what I'm saying? Like after any kind of conflict. 
I'm like, let's hug it out. And you know what's funny? Every time I go to hug someone, they smile at me, either because they're terrified or uh, because I love them. Um, That's good. Okay, verse 14, the grace of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So he wraps up all these activating, community-growing, unity-producing, joy-empowering in all the commands and all the ways he's commanded them to live and to trust in Jesus. All of that is now being activated, and he's ready to then just bring in the Trinity to bless it all. Literally, the whole Trinity is present in this verse. And listen to what he says. Let me, let me read it again. The grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So first, let me just look at these one at a time. The grace of the Lord Jesus. I came across this in my study, and I just want to share with us today. But Charles Spurgeon, he writes this. My hope lives not because I'm not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, he is my righteousness. My faith rests not upon what I am or shall be or feel or know, but in what Christ is and what he has done and what he is now doing for me. Hallelujah. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus. And then he says the love of God. So I just want to pray. So Father, I just pray now that as I share, this would come with your present love. Um, Some of you, some of us, perhaps grew up with a father that made you feel unworthy. Whether it was in your father's absence or abuse characteristics in many ways or or even that, you know, even the father's kind of expectations, often not intentionally, but this, this, this expectation to perform and to make a difference, and I'm, I'm going to coach you, I'm going to be a good father, and, um, and then if that, if that was your father, let me say that, that it's not uncommon for you to read a sentence like this or a description of the father's love and actually it not have any substance to it. It feels empty. That actually, when you read Jesus, you, you felt, when you saw that Spurgeon quote, you were like, mm, mm. Then I read the love of God, nothing. It went numb. It, it, didn't, it didn't resonate with you. And I just want to suggest, the reason is when you were with your own father somewhere, in all the things I just mentioned there, that the development of, of your relational connection to your father Somewhere in that time, you believed the lie that you were unworthy to have a father's love, a father's protection, or a father's provision. You you wouldn't consciously say it, but somewhere there was a lie that you're not worthy for his protection, provision, or identity. And I didn't want to leave this beautiful presence of the love of God, because that's what he says in the love of God. And the God of peace and of love will be with you. And he connects it to the Father. And so if that's you today, the Father is here, and he wants to show you the truth. So let me say this. If you're going to receive the truth from your Father, 
and you want that numbness to just release, the first thing you need to do is you just need to believe that he's actually here, that he wants to be with you. And just renounce the lie that you're unworthy of his love, because that's a lie. You need to say, Father, I, re- I, I renounce the lie that I'm unworthy of your love, and you sent Jesus from that place of love to bind me up, to save me from every fault and sin, and to adopt me. Release, I release that lie to you. And Father, what is the truth? The truth is that he wants to protect you, he wants to provide for you, and that the Bible is true. Everything he says about him. I I would encourage you, some of you, you know, this is not that easy. Like, you know, there's layers, layers of of your father. But Jesus is with you, and the Holy Spirit's present to give you a, a reconnection with the Father. So one of the questions I want you to do, if, you, if, if this is you, and I'm only speaking to a few of you, but if you get some time alone with Jesus, I want you to just ask him to show you the Father. And then I want you to ask the Father, when did I believe the lie that I'm unworthy of your love? And he'll probably show you a time where you began to believe the lie. And then ask him to show you the truth in that moment. Forgive who you need to forgive, your father. And I, you know, you can do this in community, you can do this with the Lord. And the fellowship, lastly, he says, of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is, this is really interesting. Read it again. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So, uh, if you go to Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians, he talks about the gifts that all have all different gifts, variety of gifts, but he says it's the same spirit that empowers them all, one spirit. So there's a fellowship of the spirit within a body of Christ, within all Christians everywhere, but within the local church where he, he's in fellowship. All have the same spirit. And so what, it, what he's saying there is when there's true biblical unity, what you'll see and experience is the Holy Spirit has influence. Where the Holy Spirit doesn't have influence in a community, there's not unity. The Holy Spirit comes with unity and fellowship. There's fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So anytime you see in relationship, church, family, marriage, husband, wife, real true unity, it's the result of the Holy Spirit's fellowship in those individual lives. That's why he's so much like, hey, let's get unified, get comforting, because the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will make a powerful community. Amen? That's what we want. Come on. The church really matters to God. Us loving the church, which is one another, serving one another, building one another up, worshiping with one another, is formational. You will not grow to become like Jesus apart from one another. So let me ask God the question. If I ask God to name all of the things he loved, how long would it take before he named the church? So I just want to thank you now, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. So sure, I close with this, and I speak this over us. The 
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I encourage you as, as you prepare to sing with us now and, 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 and take communion to grab the juice or the wine based on your conscience and prepare for communion. And we're going to just sing one more song in response. And, and uh, if, you know, if the Lord brought some conflict to mind, take today, take this afternoon before you take communion and examine How's my unity with one another? What was so interesting about communion in the first century was they were actually parties. They weren't so like, you know, formal in church service liturgical. They actually had these love feasts where they would celebrate communion. So when he says in First Corinthians, examine yourselves, there was so much selfishness. There was so much they were getting drunk on the one. There was so much stuff that they weren't one. They didn't love one another. That he's like, don't participate in the love feast of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with you if you don't have that love with one another. So just, I just, I pray and implore you to take this final close of this letter very, very serious and enjoy the fellowship of the Holy Spirit as we love one another. So let's sing and then we'll, we'll, we'll come and celebrate communion.